This is what nursing is about, right? It's about, you know, we're not Florence Nightingale anymore. We have evolved. And when we're, when we're challenged, we meet the challenge, right? We conduct our own research if nobody will do it for us. Oh, I got to go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, so I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day, now my fan, they can't eat. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Cup of Nurses show. Here with your hosts, Peter and Matt. We are two nurses on a mission to change this world, one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. Be before that. If you find value in this show and want to join us on this mission, it would mean everything to us if you rate and review the show. You can visit us on cupofnurses.com for any of the latest info, merch releases, and the updates of what we're up to. For our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Deborah S. Holbrook. Deborah is currently the Director of Forensic Nursing at Mercy Medical Center in Baltimore that coordinates care to victims of interpersonal violence for all hospitals in the Baltimore region. She is president-elect of the Academy of Forensic Nursing. She has testified before a Senate Judicial Subcommittee on Crime and Drugs on behalf of a now law known as the DNA Justice Act. Deborah also published the first research linking ALS to latent injury and strangulation. Join us as we talk about the changes that forensic nursing has undergone over the years what forensic nursing is, and how alternative light sources has changed the forensic sphere. Hey, Deb, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure having you on. Can you give us a little background about who you are and how you got here to the podcast? Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be invited. So I'm, I guess I was invited to the podcast because I've done a lifetime of work in forensic nursing in a broad spectrum of forensic nursing, um, not just sexual assaults, not just sane nursing. We stopped that in the, the late 90s. Um, so I imagine that's why I was invited to the podcast. And what was your background before becoming a sane and forensic nurse? I was um, emergency trauma cardiac ICU and then um, emergency department. And as a matter of fact, that's how I started in forensic nursing before it existed in my state and area, actually, um, almost 30 years ago. I was uh, triage one night. Yeah, I was triage one night and a case came in and that was that was what, what drove me to it. There was nothing that existed and we were never trained to do this. There was no training in nursing school. And uh, we had a student, I will actually tell you the story. I had a, a student from a, a university and I was in Delaware, Lower Delaware at the time. And she came in and I did my spiel, triage, you know, what brings you in to see us tonight? And she said, I think I was raped. I think, you know, I woke up, I went to a frat party last night. We didn't drink, uh, we had punch, but I woke up and my pants were off and my, my, clothes some of them were missing and I feel like somebody had sex with me but I don't know and a doctor happened to be walking by the the room of triage and said sorry to interrupt but there's really nothing for us to do for you um you know we don't have any special training in here there's nobody who's really trained in this work um 
this only happens, date rape drugs only happens in big cities. So that wouldn't have happened here. And, you know, we're sorry. And she looked at me and I looked at her and for the longest time, and then she got up and left. And I sat there because to a degree he was right. There was no training. Police would just bring us evidence collection kits. And, you know, you newest nurse went in the room and four to five hours later, you came out and you read the, the instructions. You didn't know what you were doing. So that's sort of the state of the union in the early 90s. Hmm. So how has that process changed to 2022 now? Well, 2022, it's much more formalized. I, I can tell you that I, I testified before the U.S. Senate in early 2002, 2000, yeah, 2002 for a bill that was signed into law. 2005 is the President's DNA Initiative, which um, encourages states to standardize and have forensic nursing in their states. Not every hospital, of course, not every hospital is specialized, but at least regionally where it's not too far that patients would have to go to get that service if they needed it um, and that the kits need to be tested. It's much better. Were you a pioneer for that bill to be passed? I was. I got to uh, Joe Biden happened to be um, a colleague of mine in Delaware at the time. He was uh, passing VAWA at the time when I met him and I was trying to start forensic nursing. And uh, so I got to testify for, for those bills and educate the Senate. Um, a lot of the senators that you recognize now were, were on the panel then. And it was a, a really exciting time because it was myself, it was Linda Fairstein, who was one of the first attorneys to ever try a case based on DNA. She did the Preppy murders in New York City and she became an author. It was Debbie Smith, who was a victim in uh, Williamsburg, uh, passing the, trying to pass the Debbie Smith Act to actually test kits. It was the head of crime labs in the United States and the head of the FBI. And then there was little me who tried, was trying to start forensic nursing out of nothing. And so um, I thought it was a great opportunity to be able to be a voice for nursing in a way that we had never been a voice before on Capitol Hill. How hard was that to start? What was the process for you to, to push for all of this? Um, it was really hard to start because uh, I took a, a course. A lot of it was based on death investigation, trying to apply those principles to live victims of crime. Some of it was uh, evidence collection, evidentiary exams on live victims of crime and brought this all back to the hospital that I was working. And they're like, this is great, but how many patients do you think you're going to see? I don't know. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a trauma nurse. I, I, I don't do feasibility studies and it was before computers. So we, you know, I went, you know, they said there's no money for this in the budget. You've got to know how many patients you're going to see. State police didn't want me to start this. They wanted to bring us the kits, but they didn't want nurses to tell them how to do their work or what to do in that arena. So it was, uh, it was not well embraced by the community and we pushed for it. I mean, I spent a year and a half where I didn't go more than an hour and a half from the hospital, took every case that came in, no pay, just to do some type of feasibility and get an idea how many people I was gonna see. And this was um, lower Delaware in a rural region. And we saw a good number of sexual assaults, surprisingly enough. And then having a voice 
had the hospital give me some credibility, give this field some credibility before it actually had a name. It was called SANE nursing back then, right? Just sexual assault. There was no real forensic nursing where you had a broad-based trauma across the lifespan capability to see lots of different victims of crime like it is now. So I guess, I guess some, if you stay in this business long enough, you become considered a pioneer, right? 30 years before it existed, I guess they call that a pioneer. Yeah, you, you definitely are a pioneer for everything that you did and fought for. And that's something that we love to talk to guests about where there's something that's that somebody's passionate about. We, we keep pushing towards change because change is very important. So moving forward now, back into 2022, this has been approximately two decades. What do you see in healthcare? Do you see improvement? Do you still see flaws? How can we better help victims that are in need in these situations? I see flaws in financing of forensic programs, right? That's the biggest deficit I see is that if a hospital has forensic programs, most times it's at one call, right? So it's an on-call program. There's very little money put into it unless people are astute enough to be able to go and get grants. Uh, I see that being a real challenge. I see in a world where nurses can make good steady income actually working shifts that an on-call paradigm not being as successful because why would you work for $5 an hour on the chance you're gonna get called in versus making what nurses are making right now pre and post COVID. Right. So I think that that's a big challenge. I think that uh, challenge as far as what police and state's attorney's office see their forensic nurses having the capability to be for them. Right. So I see trauma across the lifespan. We have a blue dot uh, human trafficking program for sex, labor and international trafficking here. That is one of the pioneer programs in the United States and how we do what we do. We do asylum. We're one of the very few programs where nurses man the asylum for legal asylum based on torture and persecution in your country of origin. So we work for the, have those attorneys in 38 states referring victims to us. It's all forms of elder abuse. We know that adult protective is a challenge system. So we've finally been able to convince our adult protective system that if you get a call from any institution or any personal citizen, forensic nurses go out as well, right? That's changed everything in our, our legal system when police now will get involved because they see the value of what we've been able to bring, right? It's child abuse, it's forced organ harvesting and having an eye out for those people who are, you know, leaving the legal registry in this country and going to China for illegal organ harvesting. It's strangulation cases and using alternate light source to be able to see injury beneath the skin that you can't see with the naked eye so that people of color have equity and justice and people period have justice because now there's somebody who has enough of wherewithal and, and research to be, to be able to bring this science to a medical case and, and help with diagnosis. Yeah, you make friends and nurses sound, sound very, very interesting. And before we hopped on the show, you mentioned that you have 34 nurses uh, that, that you manage and that, is that throughout the county? Are you guys still short on nurses? How is that? How's the staffing for y'all? 
um, staffing was very challenging during COVID when nurses went off to make very good money being travelers. Um, and then you always have a, a, a large number of nurses who are going off to do their, their DMPs, right? And need to be full-time students and work full-time jobs. And, and you know being on call or part-time shifts doesn't necessarily meet their needs. So during COVID, we were, we were challenged, but we, we offer training three times a year and we recruit from that. Um, so it's always a source of of fresh eyes, fresh blood. And that's what keeps a forensic nursing program current because you do things with blinders on. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I won't see things from the perspective of a brand new set of nursing eyes, right? From a brand new excitement and passion about this work that says, let's do research on that to see if we really are the best right? Let's vet this out. And so I love bringing in new nurses. So we're not having the problem that we were having two years ago. We're pretty staffed. And then with these nurses, is there certain nurses assigned to specific patients? Like, for example, do you have maybe a handful that just do sexual assault victims, another group that does a different kind of trauma, or does everybody just do everything? Everybody does everything. Now, you do have to be an advanced degree and uh pretty specialized in order to do asylum cases because they go before federal judges. When we started doing asylum cases, we were told nurses would never be able to do this. Only doctors. What are asylum cases? I'm sorry. What are asylum cases? Asylum cases. Yeah. For for those folks seeking legal asylum in the United States based on torture, rape, persecution in their country of origin. Um, any of those crimes, right? Female genital mutilation, any of those. And we were told that only doctors could do this. And I said, I don't think so. Don't tell a nurse that we can't do what we know we're gonna be excellent at. We're perfectly suited in the identification of wounds and injury and scars. And look at what we do with all forms of trauma. Yeah, we're gonna do this. And we did. And nobody would let us in the existing training. It was only for doctors. So we set up our own training and they said no federal judge will ever listen to a case coming through from a nurse. And our first cases got, got granted asylum. And so we started doing our own training now, but they are nurses and you have to, you have, to have advanced practice. Um, you have to have masters or doctorates in nursing to be considered um, worthy, if you will, by a federal judge for those cases. But everything else, our nurses are cross-trained. Okay, awesome. And then one more question is you mentioned finances being uh, one of the biggest issues for, for forensic nursing and all nursing is related to that. So since you're, you're the director of, of uh, forensic nursing in, in Baltimore, uh, in um, Hopkins, where does your funding come from? How do you get your money? We're funded by uh, grants. We have um, federal grants. We have some state grants. And that pretty much handles it. Right? We're not looking to make money. We just want to cover salaries. That's it. And we, we've been able to do that easily. We've not had problems. But if you go out to another state where there's somebody who's not even paid full time to, to run a program, who has no education in grant funding and no foundations to give them any type of training in that, they're going to be challenged. Right? They may be asking for donations. 
They may be working under, trying to work under a state's attorney's office or a DA's office to be funded. So it looks, there's no standardization of this work across the country. So when you get these grants, do you have to apply through them personally or do you apply through a hospital or then a hospital applies for the grant? How does that process work? We apply, we apply from the hospital. Okay. We will apply, you know, you have to have a, uh, an EIN number, mm -hmm. right? It has to be a, uh, an organization. You can't personally just do it. Right. So that's how, that's how we apply for those. And then you have to meet certain standards, I'm guessing, to keep that grant? Correct. Oh, my, yes. Oh, my, yes. You have to be, you have quarterly um, reports that go in, and they're vetted, and they are um, audited, and you have to keep stellar bookkeeping, and it's a process. It's a lot of work. You got to really need the money to go through all the work that it takes to manage a federal grant in this day and age. Question, do you think that with all your expertise and knowledge, a regular nursing program is enough for somebody that wants to get into forensic nursing? Or do you think the future would benefit from having a degree in a sense where people that are interested in nursing would go into forensic nursing with a little bit of like a crime criminal background and education because it's a completely different scope of practice it seems like versus working regular bedside or in healthcare. well that's very interesting um the nurses who do the best in this work are med surge and icu nurses right you would think it would be emergency and trauma but think about it i want nurses who are vested in head-to-toe body assessments, right? You can do a body assessment. You're very comfortable with that process. Not where in the ED where somebody comes in, they're a foot, a neck, a nose, a toe, right? You don't get it. Now, now the one thing that my emergency department nurses bring is that they're not all goo goo gaga about law enforcement and the FBI and the police that come in and right. They're not all enthralled with that right? Because they're just used to that as their practice. So that's the strength. But if I want nurses that are strong, I'm going with ICU and, and med surge nurses or PCU nurses. Um, I think that nursing schools are introducing forensic nursing, at least uh, as an option for a um, either a degreed course or at least some electives that they can take. And I know that because I teach some of these at Hopkins, um, and I've taught some in some other um, colleges as well, um, one being University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So nursing programs are, are understanding that this is not going away and it's only going to become bigger and more important as we move forward. And so I think that that's important to recognize. And what about male nursing, for example, that want to enter forensics? I know the previous guests we had on she said that there's not as much males and also it's the comfort level between the victim and the male uh, forensic nurse. What is your opinion on that? Oh, my opinion is very different. I hire male nurses. I love male nurses. I think that when you walk into an emergency room, you're not given a choice on whether you want a female or a male, right? I say I did my dissertation in college on this very subject. Is there a perceived notion that a victim of sexual assault would not want a male nurse to take care of them. And so I interviewed male forensic nurses. I interviewed victims to see what they would have wanted, those that had female and male nurses. 
and I interviewed emergency department nurses to see what they thought a victim would want and what victims want and what nurses think that they would want ended up being two very different things. My patients, our patients, it didn't matter. It was a level of empathy. Now, you had to have a chaperone if you were a male in those cases where they were doing intimate body exams. Okay, I'll give you that if it was a female. But we had nobody who denied um, a male practitioner um, access to their body and to their forensic case if they were sexually assaulted. So I think that that is a, um, a myth. Yeah. What were the two differences the, between what the patients actually, actually wanted and needed and what the nurses thought that they needed and wanted? Patients said it didn't matter to them at all, as long as somebody was empathetic and knew what they were doing. Nurses, on the other hand, thought that patients would never want a male taking care of them if they were assaulted by a male, male or female patient. So that's where the big disparity lies um, in what people, I think it's the same thing in nursing, right? You think, oh, a female patient's not going to want a male nurse to do this procedure or want a male nurse to take care of them. And I think that if you actually did a study on it, you'd find that that's not the case at all. You want somebody competent. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Even though Peter and I experience a handful of times when the patient prefers the female or they prefer switching the assignment, maybe taking them to the bathroom. So hopefully over time, as our culture is changing, that's those views are going to change as well. And as far as from the victim side, what do you think are the flaws or the barriers to entry, for example, when it comes for the victim to sharing what what exactly happened so what are the barriers be, before the victim comes and sees you guys well depending upon what type of crime you're talking about you're talking about uh, domestic violence you're talking about uh, elder abuse where you've got some dependency or perceived dependency on the abuser whether it's financial, whether it's because there's children involved, whether you're in an elder abuse case where you really can't admit that your child is doing this to you by, by uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse, or financial exploitation. I find that our elders are very less likely to report this. Um, and so those cases, that's a huge barrier. In sexual assault, think about it, most people are sexually assaulted by somebody that they know. I mean, we have a relatively high degree of stranger rape in my area, but there's some areas that will have very few stranger rapes. I mean, that is big news if you get a stranger rape in some communities. And so if the person that sexually assaults you knows where you live and where you work, has ties to your family, knows where your mother lives and works and threatens you, you may be a lot less likely to come forward, even though you've got a period of time to get an evidentiary exam done, right? I can do pictures and I can do reports forever, but I only have about 15 days to get actual DNA evidence probably less than that for trace evidence. One of the best things that's ever happened is when the federal government uh, declared that as part of Violence Against Women Act provisions for receiving that money in your state, that you had to be able to allow a patient to have what's called a blind report, 
or an anonymous report. So they didn't have to report to police. They can come and, and in our state that evidence is held for 20 years. In some areas it's held forever. And so these patients now know because we've made them aware that they can come in and we won't call police. And they have that time to make that decision about whether it's right for them. And that has changed everything. For some of our newer uh, forensic nursing listeners, what are some key ways to approach a, a victim? What are things that a nurse should keep in mind when a patient comes in? And Violence Against Women has drafted a, uh, a campaign called We Believe, the Start by Believing campaign, because in sexual assault, as in no other uh, form of crime and no other form of medical care, patients are doubted. The, the T-sheets or the, 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 the patient's discharge paperwork will say alleged sexual assault, where it doesn't say alleged MVC or alleged fall, you weren't there to see those either, but they'll all say alleged sexual assault. So one of the first things that forensic nurses or any nurse needs to do is believe. Just believe people. And when I greet my patient, I greet them by saying, hi, my name's Debbie. I don't know the details of why you're here. We'll talk about that. But I want you to know something. I'm gonna take such good care of you. You're safe here and I believe you. And I watch people just relax, right? I just, I just watch them. It's a beautiful thing to watch people relax. Think about what would have happened if nobody in America or that, that first detective would not have believed that young gymnast on the Dr. Nasser cases. Think about what we would have missed if somebody had said, oh, this is a kid with a bizarre story. He's right, he's one of the most renowned physicians in the United States Olympic Committee. Oh no, this couldn't have happened, but it happens across the United States. And so because nurses are the most trusted profession, patients tend to tell us things that they wouldn't tell docs and they wouldn't tell police, or they give us more details. The kindness and the empathy that you show and then the allowing, don't allow the shock to be in your face right, and your expression, because when you hear things, it's shocking. The, the bar has been raised in crime. And just believe people. And it's not, your, it's not your job to vet that out. If it's not true, somebody down the line is going to vet it out before it goes to trial. Our job is to believe people and take care of them as patients. Definitely, yeah, because they're at a very vulnerable place in their, in their lives. And sometimes, especially sexual assault victims, they seem like, or they feel that they're now in like a lower part of society because they got raped or sexually abused, and it's really hard to talk about those those things. So over over yeah. So over time, have you seen a maybe a, a trend or a spike in, in certain crime versus versus other crime? <clears throat> Strangulation off the charts, off the charts. I see. I see rape, um, I don't know how to describe this where it won't be so nasty on this podcast. It used to be rape was rape, right? Or forced fellatio was forced fellatio. But now I see vaginal, anal, oral, that, that extra degree of degrading a person 
one one step more, right? Anal and then oral, right? That is that's that's rock bottom for how you treat people. I see human trafficking patients, um, where where we may not have called things human trafficking before. I see the brutality in these cases so much worse than I did when I first started this work. I see since COVID, um, familial trafficking, where people put their own kids out to make money in sex, um, put their parents out to make money in labor, right? I never saw that. Used to be able, we were able to swab a bite mark for DNA. Or uh, I can tell you when I first started this work, we did bite mark impressions. Not anymore. Now people take a bite out and they either swallow it or spit it out and they take a whole hunk out. So there's such a preponderance of the victim's blood and DNA. It's very difficult to get some of the suspect's DNA. So, so I don't see one kind of crime more than another, but it's like the bar for cruelty has been raised to a degree that I have never seen it before. Jeez, that, that's so mind-blowing to think about. And right away, the thing that popped in my mind is just thinking about the whole Jeffrey Epstein case that happened where they completely put that on. They kind of swept underneath the rug where the, these things are not happening. And you're just mentioning how sex trafficking and then child crime and everything that's happening. It's such a prevalent thing. And uh, even just like you said, after COVID, it all just increased. And I was talking to a pediatric nurse. And she felt burnt out too, working with kids because during the pandemic, all she seen was suicidal uh, kids, and there were they just had sitters everywhere, and it wasn't the same pediatric cases that she was used to. And kind of going back to uh, you, you mentioned strangulation and stuff, and you also mentioned al alternative light therapy. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk about that? And I know you said you testified uh, testified in Capitol Hill about that as well. So is that a new technology that just emerged? I, I didn't testify on Capitol Hill in ALS. I, I pioneered the first research in the world linking alternate light source technology to strangulation and being able to see wounds that you just can't see with the eye when you're looking at somebody, okay? So all that alternate light source is, is filtering out bands of light till you get a, a degree of maybe 40 wavelength. Okay, so it, it, the light in your room right now is everything from 200 to 600, that's all safe. Seven to 900 is dangerous, you, that's what you get from the sun, we never use that. Black light is an example. Um, the way you see is 200 to 600, you can see everything. Things are absorbed and they're reflected and that's how you see. A black light is just around 300 to 350, right? And things fluoresce. So we might use that to look for bodily fluids or saliva, semen, right? Lubricants, stuff like that. So we know where to swab. So my scientific question was, I've got this wonderful light source that gives me the opportunity to, to see 400, 450, 500, 550 wavelength. What do I, what could I see if I used it? And the rest has been history. Because if you shine that on a patient's skin and then you ask them to show you on a mannequin how they were strangled, the wounds line up and I can't see it with my eye, but I shine that light on them and I'm able to see the, the fingerprints. I'm able to see the finger marks and the, the nail marks and the, and the finger-like markings. 
And it's been, and, and, and folks who are dark skinned, I may never see a bruise emerge, right? I might never. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't have equity and justice as a light skinned person. It has improved that as well. So how long do these fingerprints stand the skin after a strangulation case when you're able to shine this light? We're able to use, um, well, we're able to get DNA from them, first of all. Um, any, any community whose crime lab has touched DNA, we're able to swab and get the perpetrators. And I don't mean fingerprints in the technical sense of fingerprints, right? With those little lines in them, like you would get fingerprints where they brush, not fingerprints, because you have to use um, sort of a smoke system with super glue to do that. And you can't do that with a person. But I'm talking about finger tip, uh, maybe fingertip markings would be a better way to describe that rather than fingerprint markings. And you also mentioned bruising. So let's just say somebody's dark skin. I just want to understand the science behind it. So this light is able to visualize where you had bruising, where your muscle tissue changed or swelled up and it sure. shows up. Sure. So think about bruises. Think about how you bruise. Just what happens in the body. It's a rupture of capillaries, right? That's what causes bruises. It's painful, maybe indurated, causes a bruise. You'll see that discoloration. That's only in, in where you have small blunt force trauma, where the, 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 the energy, if you will, is all focused in one spot that ruptures capillaries. But what happens if you run into a wall? I could run into a wall all day with my upper arm from across the room. And unless I'm on anticoagulants, I won't bruise. Why? Physics. Energy is dispersed in the broad surface of the wall and the broad surface of my arm. But it doesn't mean there isn't bruising underneath the skin somewhere. It may come to the surface days later. It might never come to the surface at all. But it doesn't mean it's not there. This is just a different way of looking at something. It's not magic, right? Like I can't see anything without my glasses. Glasses aren't magic. A microscope doesn't mean there's germs aren't there swimming around. It just means I can't see them with my naked eye unless I use a microscope slide, right? So that's all that alternate light source is. It's being able to look at something under a different wavelength and see what you see. And it's, uh, we've been able to get it under fry weed hearings here in Baltimore um, City in our courts, which means as a respected technology by my peers. When I first started, I couldn't get it in under that. Everybody said that Debbie Holbrook's using a magic wand. <laughs> Don't believe her. Yeah. Like I'm so smart, right? Harry Potter over here. It's not that. It's just now we've been able to prove it. Now we're actually, I just interviewed with the Today Show and it should be showing in the next couple of weeks. I think it's Today Show and the Nightly News on NBC. It's going to air it. Because George Mason University has partnered with us to actually do a, a, a study that is more robust than I can do alone, right? Where you inflict with paintball guns, they got a hundred nurses and shot paintball guns at them. And then after their bruises disappeared, IRB approved, yes. After their bruises disappeared, let's see how much longer you can see this with, with ALS. And we can see wounds up to 30 days after bruises disappear. So for our patients who are afraid to come to us right away, and maybe they'll take pictures of themselves or they'll have their family take pictures, 
they're not admissible in court because the court may assume that they were photoshopped, right? Now they've got no justice unless they know that they can come in at 30 days out and we can still get pictures in the dark. And one of the things that the George Mason University is doing in this research now is standardizing what I do here in Baltimore City nationwide. So there's a standardization so everybody can use ALS the same way. That's amazing. You should be very proud of yourself for doing that. No, it's fun stuff. It's called nursing. This is what nursing is about, right? It's about, you know, we're not Florence Nightingale anymore. We have evolved. And when we're, when we're challenged, we meet the challenge, right? We conduct our own research if nobody will do it for us. Yeah, it's, it's taking that growth mindset and seeing what else is possible. And I know talking to previous guests, data is king. So if you're able to figure out how you can prove your point and take the data and just like you're doing, then it's easier to introduce change when you have the paperwork behind the research of what you're doing. So kind of moving forward now, what are you, what are you passionate about? What do you want to kind of tackle? Is there like a next project? Retirement. Grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. I want to make sure that I'm leaving this work in really strong hands with nurses that are coming under me, right? I've worked really hard to walk away from it. Um, I do consulting now and I'm passionate about um, doing that so that I have some more time with family and in, in my 60s now. So I, 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 I want that, that work-life balance that, that I personally have never been able to have in this work. I'm passionate about making sure that ALS is a staple with forensic nursing programs across the world. Um, I'm passionate about assuring that there is justice and kindness for victims of trafficking. Those people are still owned in 2022 and beaten and tortured and starved in ways that you can't imagine. And I want to make sure that they have a voice and that programs across the country are outfitted, right? That they are, they are suited to be able to take care of these these victims of crime because they're very different than anything else that we see. And there's another question. What do you think drives or motivates people to, to do these crimes? Because personally, I can never see myself doing this. And even when I look at my friends and loved ones, I can't imagine anyone doing, doing these crimes against somebody. So do you think there's like a, an issue in society or an issue in someone's life that drives them to do these kind of heinous crimes? Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of things that I can see now. Now, can you hold me to a study on this? Maybe, I don't know, I haven't read every study out there, but I can just tell you having personally done 6,000 exams and having been involved in you know, many thousand more than that, people who are doing this generally uh, uh, in human trafficking, it's, uh, it's, it's this need for money. It's people who have very little respect for human life, period. It's not just people who have a, a psych component for evil. There are just pure evil people out there. We know that, right? The Charles Mansons of any decade, there are those evil people. But it all goes back to something in childhood. It goes back to child abuse. It goes back to neglect. It goes back to not getting love or affection or something 
that they needed when they were children. And that's what I see as uh, career criminals who just are going out and being cruel, whether it's against women, whether it's against children, I see that. Um, I see the computer as a source of evil, pure evil when it comes to marketing uh, victims of trafficking, when it comes to um, child porn. Used to be you have to find a triple X bookstore, right? That sold that and very, very hard to find and connect to other people who were like you if you were a pedophile. Now you click a button. It's very easy to groom children to, to do this, to groom young people. Um, and the other see, thing I see is this, this almighty dollar. Um, if folks can find a way to make money doing something, they'll do it. Um, it's, it's a sad state of affair, how I see crime right now in the United States especially, but worldwide. Yeah, it's very it's very complicated because, like you were saying, at one point that perpetrator was a victim at, at some point in their lives, and whatever event that caused them to be this way, life is, is the is the way it is where you could you could easily play on on those on those vices instead of like your virtues. Like you said, some of these things are more accessible. So maybe somebody that that was abused as a child is now abusing children. It's a lot easier for him to do that now because he has access to all these these other things. So it's so it's almost harder to stop him from doing that so it's like is is this perpetrator do you treat him as as a as a victim or do you treat him as a perpetrator because if he, that person himself went through this trauma so how do you like look at that that person in that case is he a really really bad person or was he just victimized as a young kid that led him to this it's very complicated and there's the age old question right give you an example i was lecturing for the government and I went to a city where there was a brutal, brutal sexual assault that happened. Horrible case. They called me in to consult on. And then what they found out was that this 20-some-year-old perpetrator, his father used him from the age of four as a prize at the poker games for people to have sex with. Now, now. Okay, age old question. Do we feel sorry for somebody and let them go and have a world full of people like this? Or do we say at some point, bad stuff happens to everybody. Very few of us have led perfect childhoods, perfect easy lives. At some point in society, you learn right and wrong. No matter what's happened to you, what it takes therapy to get over it, right? Whatever it takes to get over it, you get over it to be a productive member of society. And I would be of, of course, it's what I do for a living, but I'm of the belief that it, it's sad what happens to people when they're children, but you've got to get the therapy and get over it and be productive, decent people because you can't use that to feel sorry for you in court to let you keep going out and perpetrating these crimes. My my two cents, that's my my two cents on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at one point you have to you have to say enough is enough. You're aware of what you're doing and you, and you know what's wrong. 
And a lot of these these people even say that what they're doing is wrong, but yet they they still follow that th- th- those feelings or those emotions or that rationale of, of why they do these kind of things. It's it's really mind blowing. They're technically still a victim from childhood, but they're a victim to themselves and not taking personal responsibility, like you mentioned, for their actions. So they're just a lifelong victim, and it's sad because then they inflict wounds onto other people and make them victims as well of their crimes. Agree. And I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm sure a lot of people would challenge me on this, right? I'm a nurse. Exactly. And well, nurses a have nurse. great intuition. I can tell you what I see. <laughs> well, your opinion is just as important. Just, just because you're a nurse, you don't have like that degree. You've seen a lot of this stuff. So your parent, your opinion is very, very valid. And based on everything that you're experiencing, how do you create your work-life balance? How do you detach from all the crime and the things that you see in the unfortunate parts of life? What keeps you sane in your sense when you unplug from forensic nursing? Um, I'm very, very blessed to have a, a, a wonderful, loving husband. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to have three children who are now in their 30s who are amazing, beautiful, kind human beings um, and two grandchildren and little, little grandchildren. Um, and they are my happy place. I will tell you that they are my happy place. Um, I, I, I believe in prayer. So prayer has been very, very strong for me. But come on, when you come off the back of six horrible cases in a row, I'm not going to tell you that I'm not fussing and fuming in my car about drivers, right? That I don't have a modified little bit of road rage. I know that that's when my cup runneth over with the sad. And you know, after a while when you need to do, I do critical incident stress debriefing with my staff to get them off, get it off of their shoulders. And I think that in this work, especially and in and, and any kind of work that's stressful in nursing, you've got to be you got to be smart enough to say, oh, you know what? I am really, really bordering the edge here with my with, with being mean and nasty and tired and angry. I need to go talk to somebody. And that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of being smart and brave. I'm mature, I think. It's a, to, to unload it, right? And so I, I embrace those opportunities when I need to. Mm-hmm. 100%. We, we always recommend for nurses or just anybody in jail that's, that's struggling, maybe they're in a, in a hard, hard time in their, in their life. We always say, Hey, talk to somebody that and, and, and working out, you know, just you being able to talk about it, explain your feelings, tell somebody what's going on in your mind. It's almost like you push that out. You push that, push that out and you're not thinking about it as, as much. It's very, very underestimated how powerful just talking about your problems are. For example, Matt's, Matt's at his uh, nursing break, but there's times where I leave my shift, I text them, I talk about how it went because I was stressed out and I feel better about it. And it's like, it's it's already something that I do on like a daily basis that I'm programmed to do. But before that, when I was coming out of nursing school, being a new grad nurse, maybe my first year, I didn't really talk about it, about how stressed I was at work or what really bothered me or, or, or pissed me off. And I just held on to that. And every time I would come into work frustrated and stressed out because I never got rid of those emotions that the, that came with a prior shift. So that's super, super important just to talk about. Talk about what you're feeling. Talk about your problems. And it's a lot easier to talk about it, you know, with a, with a friend that can, that can help you. Agreed. Mm. One last question we'd like to ask all of our guests. So if you had an opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody, 
one last time, who would it be and why? One last time would be my grandmother. I'll be honest with you. She wasn't famous and she wasn't rich. She wasn't schooled. She, she wanted to be, watch, I'll cry. She wanted to be a nurse, but she grew up in a time where she had to take care of her younger brothers and sisters because everybody died um, in her family. And her dream, her dream was to be a nurse and she never got to be that. And I think that I'd like to think that she'd be very proud of me right now. And that's who I would have. That's who I would have a, a cup of coffee with if I were a cup of tea with, if I could have one person in the world. That's amazing. And where can people find you and support your work? And I know you mentioned an app as well. Yeah, we have the Be More Safe app. I will just tell you it's a Baltimore app. It's the letter B, M-O-R-E-S-A-F-E. It's free to Android and iPhones. Um, that will give us so much information about what we do and what you can do in your community. We have bemoresafemercy.org, which is a website, talks to you about how to become a forensic nurse, advice for practitioners, what to do and not do, mess up cases, if you will, um, and some educational opportunities. Um, you can reach me at dholbrook at afnmail.org. I have started a company called Holbrook Forensic Consulting that is um, being built right now. So my website is under construction right now, but um, I do a lot of consulting. And if, if anybody wants to learn more about ALS or um, how to start a blue dot program or a human trafficking program in their area, we can hook you up to the right people to help you out. Thank you so much. And we just want to say that we're grateful for having you on. It's been a great opportunity. You are a wealth of knowledge and more than anything, it's very inspirational, motivational that, when you first started your career, you've paved the way for so many things. We're a pioneer and Peter and I are also passionate about changing healthcare for the better. So it's amazing talking to people and seeing that it's possible because a lot of times as nurses, you hear your previous nurses that worked, change never happened, change never happened, but you are the, the source and an example that change is possible if you put your mind to it. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. And you guys as well, right? This podcast is is very it's ingenious and it's it's cutting edge and it's giving nurses a voice so kudos to you as well thank you so much deb thank you, thank you